you could even be prosecuted for watching an animal fight. Uh, a first-time offense is a misdemeanor, which means up to six months in jail. A second-time offense is a gross misdemeanor, which is up to 364 days in county jail. And a third-time offense is a Category E felony, which could subject you to up to four years in the state prison. Came to work for you. We cut our... We only had one. That's 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't even know the difference. I mean, it's, again, like you say, the debit card can do everything. It's real purchasing versus this myth and uh, you can just fall into a trap. You just never know when some emergency happens. If you don't have the baby steps in place and you don't have a real emergency fund in place, Josh, uh, uh, you know, you, you just, it's, it's too much of a temptation to then say, oh, well, I've got it. I'm going to use it. Now you're, now you're behind the well, the other The other pieces of data we've got is, is that they, any kind of, non-cash transaction, debit, credit, mm-hmm. uh, Apple Pay. Oh, yes, that's right. Any of these, they're lo- what are called low-friction transactions. It, when you spend with cash, it activates the pain centers of your brain. And it doesn't when you do a low-friction transaction with plastic. And actually, credit cards are lower friction because somewhere deep down in your psyche, you know you don't have to pay it. You don't have to have the money in the account today. Mm-hmm. I just got to get my paycheck by the end of the month, yeah. or I can pay one of those easy yes. payments. Right. And somewhere down in your psyche, your your intellect tells you that, and so you have a tendency to spend more, and all kinds of different pieces of research showing that, that you spend more with credit cards than you do with debit cards, and more with debit cards than you do with cash. Yeah. That's just uh, psychology. Again, because you, it's a psychology of behavior, and it doesn't matter how disciplined you are. Mm. Uh, I'm disciplined. I teach this stuff for a living, and we're on a cruise ship. And of course, they can. There's no money on a cruise ship these days. Back when we used to have cruises, mm-hmm. remember those? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, your door key, right. your door key will buy anything on the boat. And I find myself buying the kids, you know, six dollar ice cream cones or whatever. Same thing in Disney property. Mm-hmm. Your door key will work. Oh. It's your it's your own property, and you now can buy you can rate. buy one of those sixty three dollar raincoats yeah. and not think anything yeah. about it because it rains every afternoon. Disney arranged that. True, and so um, you know, but you just don't you don't realize it emotionally that you're overspending and that you're spending more than you would, even if you're disciplined. I'm pretty dead gum disciplined. I teach this for a living, right? But I get back to the room and I'm like going. Dad gum. And we, you could afford a lot of sixty-three dollar. Bought some coats. stuff. I can afford it, but yeah. I'm just looking at the bill going. We yeah. bought some stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like swipe, swipe, swipe. Right. And um, you know, I so. heard you say this once. We were talking about this one time. We we have a mutual friend who posed that one time. We were hanging out at his house, and he was literally asking all this, and you said the same thing. And it's funny that really wealthy people don't need airplane miles. They don't. Like, <laughs> real wealth. Do they have money? Yeah, they don't <laughs> care. They have their own plane. They don't care about the miles because they go, hey, I think I want to go here tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm really rich. I can do that. <laughs> a pardon is a government-issued forgiveness 
of a crime committed here in the state of Nevada. A pardon does not erase a criminal conviction. Only a record seal does that. But it can help you to restore your civil rights and your right to possess a firearm. In short, a pardon forgives but does not forget. The benefits of having a pardon here in Nevada for a past criminal conviction include the following. It would remove all legal disabilities resulting from a criminal conviction. Uh, it would be the only way for you to get your gun rights restored. If you receive a pardon, your prior conviction could not be used to impeach you if you testify in a criminal case. If you're looking for a job, although it doesn't erase your conviction, you can attach a pardon to a job application, which would likely remove any hindrance to getting employment. If you're not a citizen and you're having immigration issues, it will likely prevent you from being deported or denied naturalization and can restore your right to vote, your right to hold office, and your right to serve on a jury. Note, a pardon does not do any of the following. It does not overturn, seal, or expunge a judgment of conviction. There's a separate process for doing that called a record seal here in the state of Nevada. It does not relieve the duty of a sex offender to register, and it does not guarantee that an employer will hire you if you have a criminal record. The penalties depend on whether or not you have priors. For a first-time offense, it would be treated the same as a DUI, alcohol. Um, minimum two days in jail, up to six months in jail. Uh, for a second-time offense, it's a minimum of 10 days in jail. And for a third-time offense within seven years, you're looking at a felony with a minimum one year in state prison. Additionally, you would be required to do a DUI class, which you could do online. You'd be required to attend a victim impact program, and you'd be required to pay fines and fees. Here in the state of Nevada, if you've been in an accident while driving with a prohibited substance, including marijuana, and someone's been injured, the penalties go up substantially. And you're looking at up to 20 years in state prison if you were in a DUI marijuana-related accident where somebody was injured. Send everything out so you don't have no problems. You get yourself a W-2 at the end of the year. You want that. Trust me. <laughs> don't be like me in the past where I learned from that mistake, okay? Now, you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. What is a reasonable salary? Well, if you look up on the IRS rules, they have, cert they have certain rules around what a reasonable salary is. It can be based upon expertise, how much money the business generates, um, uh, the, the economy, where you're located. It's a lot of things that are involved in this, okay? When it comes to reasonable salary. That's why you want to talk to a... Um, a legal or a, a financial professional to be able to discuss what a reasonable salary is based off your business. 
I'm just giving you an example here. Now, the example I'm going to give you is, I'm going to say out of this $100,000 in net, I only want, I want 50% of that to, to be paid out as a reasonable salary to me. So I'm going to take a salary of 50,000 and I'm going to have the other 50,000 being paid out as a distribution to me. The distribution is still going to come to me. I just want it to be done differently. And I'll, I'll talk about why. The reason why is because on your reasonable salary of $50,000, you have to pay self-employment tax on that reasonable salary. Okay, so now that I'm only taking a salary of 50,000, my self-employment tax, that 15.3%, instead of it being $15,300 that I'm paying on the whole, on the entire 100K, I'm now only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax because my salary is only $50,000. You get it? 50,000, 15.3%, $7,650 in self-employment tax instead of 15,300 because the entire 100 grand, I'm breaking it up into reasonable salary. Now, what happens to that other $50,000 in net? I'm paying it to me as a distribution. That's one of the advantages of having an S-Corp. You can pay a distribution to yourself. That distribution that you pay to yourself there is no self-employment tax on the distribution. So now that there's no self-employment tax on the 50, on the distribution, I'm getting the 50,000 bypassing that 15.3% in tax. I still have to pay, of course, the federal, the state, local, and et cetera taxes on that 50,000. I'm bypassing that 15.3% though that becomes expensive to me over time as I start to make more money. So now, no, uh, no self-employment tax on that other 50,000, zero dollars in SC tax. So now I only had to pay $7,650 because I distributed it out. Now, I know what you're probably saying to yourself, well, Don, why don't I if I can bypass the self-employment tax of the 15.3%, why don't I just pay out my entire amount as a distribution? I know you're probably thinking that as an entrepreneur because look, I would think the same thing. 15.3, mm, I've paid out as the distribution. Trust and believe me, the IRS keeps a very close eye on that. And that's why they say reasonable salary. Because if you start paying, if you try to abuse this rule, and out of this hundred thousand, you say, you know what? I'm only going to take a reasonable salary of ten of ten thousand dollars, or ten percent of this, and the other ninety percent is going to be a distribution. I can guarantee you're going to get flagged, almost guarantee it. You don't abuse this here, right? So I say fifty fifty. There's others online that say sixty forty, right? Some people, it depends. Talk to your talk to a professional, right? But. You want to make sure that it's a reasonable salary. I'm going 50-50, and I'm being modest here, okay? Don't abuse this rule. They put this in place for a reason because they know people are going to try to bypass and pay out an entire distribution of themselves to bypass the 15.3% in tax, right? So that's the reason why, as an entrepreneur, don't try to, get, don't try to do any funny business here, right? 
50, 50% goes reasonable, the other 50% goes distribution, cool, I'm able to bypass. Now, if we talk about it from a savings perspective now, remember, between my $15,300 that I'm paying in self-employment tax on this entire 100K, plus that 25% that I'm paying in federal and state taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 over here as an LLC that's taxed as a, as a sole prop. But now, since I'm an S-Corp, I'm only paying $7,650 in self-employment tax, and I'm bypassing the self-employment on that other $50,000. And I still got to pay my federal and state taxes, right? Which is still going to be $20,000 over here. Same thing. But the difference is now, instead of me paying $36,000, I'm actually paying about $28,000 in taxes on this side. So now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, and I'm gonna write this down. Now that I'm only paying 28 on this side, instead of actually paying 36 on this side, Let's talk about theft, petty larceny, grand larceny. What encompasses the crime of theft in Nevada, right? Nevada criminal statutes provide a detailed definition of theft that encompasses a number of specific actions, right? These laws state that a person commits theft by controlling the property of another person with the intent to deprive that person of the property converting, making an unauthorized transfer of an interest in or using the property of another person without authorization, obtaining the property or services of another person by making a material misrepresentation or coming into control of lost or misdelivered property of another person without making reasonable efforts to notify the true owner or the person controlling the property while knowing or having reason to know that the property was stolen, that is essentially the definition of theft, petty larceny, or grand larceny. Now, the difference on those, depending on how you're going to be charged, is going to be the value of the property, right? So, if you steal property that has a value of $250 or less, you'll be charged with misdemeanor petty larceny. Steal property with a value of over $250, that is grand larceny felony. I want to introduce you to a well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. 
And Let's talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem congruent. You're, a, you're an attorney. Uh, you later became a CEO and that you found and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the Department of Justice was targeting you for prosecution. The case ultimately began as a uh, Securities and Exchange Commission civil case, and there was a referral, as I understood it, made to the uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in, in the Northern District of Illinois. It was How long very did that take? You found out that there was a SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation? No, actually, that began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002, uh, and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the pendency of the criminal case. So the cases were going simultaneously. First, there was a Securities Exchange Commission case, then that was put on hold, and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of, of uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you, did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do? Well, when I first found out I was a target was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. I hired an attorney at that time, and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted, or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved. Tell us about that. That's that's interesting. So you there, the the Department of Justice raided your facility. Then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? Or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications? I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was. So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just, it was a uh, no cash, uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment. And you appeared for your arraignment and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial? I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later. What was the cost of litigating that case. Do you recall, David? Um, I believe it was uh, $25,000. So not a tremendous amount of legal ex- legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you 
ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long? 14 years. Well, let me, let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to a, uh, an, an amount of years. That was never- What were you anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement? Uh, in the area of 10 years. It was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, uh, specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur. So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted? Never pay collections or charge-offs. Did you hear me? Let me say that again. Do you have bad credit and you're trying to fix it? Well, we are not going to be paying any collections or any charge off, but we are still going to fix your credit in a major way. I'm going to show you how. Let's go. Noel. Yeah, she can fix that. If you got to get it done, no, you need to do it better. Well, she can fix that. Yeah, she can fix that. Investment to get back, trying to get a big step. She can fix that. Let's fix that. So let's talk about credit because this is so important. I know so many people want great personal credit. I literally started off with very, very bad credit. I'm talking 520 or something score like that. I literally started off like in this credit game and learning about this in my parents' basement, okay? I was a dejected, bankrupt, broke person investing in real estate, doing some wholesaling from my parents' basement, and I now have a credit score over 800. So this is very easy to do, and I'm gonna tell you exactly how to do it and share with you some of the mistakes that I made along the way so that you don't make those same mistakes. So when it comes to personal credit, you know that you have three credit bureaus. There's Equifax, there's Experian, and there's TransUnion. And when it comes to personal credit, you have those three bureaus and they will report all of the different debts that you have. So if you have auto loans, or if you have credit cards, if you have student loans, if you have mortgages, those will all report on your personal credit report as trade lines. And depending on how well you pay them, if you pay things on time, how long you've had the accounts, you will have a credit score. In most cases, we call it a FICO score. If you want to find out what your FICO score is or access that for a very cheap price, I'll make sure to put a link below to my FICO. But the important thing when it comes to personal credit that you need to know is that you can affect your credit score really easily and you do not have to be a victim of the score that they have given you. That was probably the biggest thing. I thought that I had a very low credit score and I literally didn't do anything to fix it until many, many months and years later when I could have just started fixing it immediately. I felt like, well, I have bad credit. I got foreclosures. I got a bankruptcy. I got bad credit. I just have to have bad credit. And I'm sure you probably have those same things but it is not true at all. You literally can clean up your credit report in a matter of weeks, and I'm gonna tell you some secrets on why and how you can get it done without spending any money in the process. 
So let's talk about what affects your credit score. Like I said, we all have trade lines and all of the different trades and things that people have given you will report on your credit report. But there are different things that affect your credit score and this is very important for you to know. So of course, you have different trade lines. If you have an auto loan, that is considered an installment type of loan. But if you have a credit card, for example, that is considered a revolving type of account because the amount is variable and it is a revolving account. And then you have mortgages. That is a different type of account. A mortgage is a mortgage. It is different from a revolving or an installment account. So you want to have a different mix of the different types of accounts that you have. You want to have a car loan. I know some people are afraid of debt and they don't want any debts and they don't want a car loan. But if you want to have a good personal credit score, you probably should take out a car loan at some point in time. You probably should borrow money and buy a house if you want to have a good credit score. So the bottom line to it is you want to make sure that you know what affects your credit score. And the different types of accounts are one of the things that affects your credit score. The next thing that affects it is how well you pay those trade lines, how well you pay those accounts. Do you pay them late? Do you pay them on time? Do you pay them 30 days late? Do you pay them 60 days late or 90 days late? That's going to be a big factor in your credit score. How much of the credit you use. So again, what type of accounts, how well you pay them, and then what the balance is to the amount that they gave you, the limit. That's going to affect your credit score. That's called your debt utilization rate. And then you have debt ratio. So credit bureaus, they're very smart now as all this AI, artificial intelligence. They can predict about how much money you make, you know, just based on some factors. And so they actually kind of do a simulated debt ratio of how much money they think you make based on how much debt you have on your credit report. And so that will affect your credit score too. So let me give you all the secrets to how you actually maneuver this with this information because I have some good info for you guys. So if you are watching this video, I'm assuming you probably have some bad credit issues, kind of like how I have, where you have some collections or you have some charge-offs. So let me quickly tell you the difference though between a collection and a charge-off. So say for example, you have a credit card. Let's just use Capital One for example because I literally, this was my situation. So I'm just gonna use me. I'm not gonna use anybody else. I had a Capital One credit card, you know, in like 2002 or whatever. They gave it to me when I was like, you know, 21 years old or whatever. And I like did use, I used it. And then when I didn't pay it, they would call me all the time and then, you know, I didn't have the money. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Appeals aren't the only way to contest guilty verdicts after a Nevada criminal trial. Under NRS 176.515, defendants can request an entirely new trial. Here are five things to know. One, a motion for new trial is when a defendant who is found guilty at trial Ask the judge to hold a do-over. If the judge grants the motion, it will be as if the first trial never happened. Two, new trials are held in the same court that heard the original trial. Three, defendants granted new trials may introduce new evidence that was not included in the original trial. Four, it is rare for judges to grant motions for new trial, but it can happen. Typical grounds for a new trial include 
prosecutorial misconduct, newly discovered evidence, or the unlawful admission of evidence in the first trial. And five, in general, defendants have only seven days after their guilty verdict to bring a motion for a new trial. But if there is newly discovered evidence, the time limit for asking for a new trial is two years after the guilty verdict. And in some cases involving new DNA evidence, there is no time limit at all. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. The next quote, they're talking about self-employment tax, which I'll be talking about in a second, self-employment tax. As an S-Corp, you can start to bypass some of those self-employment taxes to save yourself some money and keep it in your pocket. And that's what we'll be talking about here in this next step. All right, now we're down to the fun part. Let's break down an LLC that's taxed as a sole proprietorship, LLC taxed as an S-Corp, and really showing you the numbers from a tax standpoint, right? And then we'll get into when is it actually worth your time to be elected to be taxed as an S-Corp because there is a breaking point of when it's worth your time, right? Because me as an entrepreneur, taxes, let's just take taxes away from this. There's, 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 a, there's a, t- a cost of time, right? As entrepreneurs, we, we have time that, that we need to make money, marketing, etc., right? And then on top of that, we're paying for attorneys and we're paying for tax tax professionals or CPAs, or if we have to pay state fees for our S-Corp, then there's a certain amount of time that's involved to do all of these things, which means that it needs to be worth my time to save that money by electing to be taxed as an S-Corp, which we'll talk about in that next part after that. But let's break this down here um, of why an S-Corp can be an advantage to those that are netting a certain amount of money. So I, I'm, I'm going to compare both here. So you'll see LLC taxes and S, uh, sole prop and the LLC taxes and S corp. And we're going to talk about both here. So again, we still got Prince.nl LLC. Y'all know that he, Prince.nl LLC, I do marketing, TikTok, YouTube, all types of stuff, right? And um, like I talked about in the last example, same example here, made $150,000 in revenue, right? Um, 50,000 in expenses, I netted 100K. Now, my LLC is taxes and S Corp over here, same thing, 150,000 in revenue, 50,000 in expenses, and then I netted 100K. Same examples here on both sides, on both both sides of the tax. Now remember, as an LLC taxes a uh, sole prop, remember, you're paying so, uh, self-employment tax on the entire net of the 100K. Okay, self-employment tax, uh, Medicare, Social Security, 15.3%. You're paying $15,300, a bill that you got to pay to the government, right? And then remember, let's say that my taxable income, when, uh, when that money passes through to my personal tax return, let's say that my taxable income is $80,000. Well, now on my taxable income of $80,000, I got to pay federal taxes, state taxes, local tax since I'm here in Philadelphia and other there's other taxes that could be involved as well 
So let's just assume that I'm paying about 25% between federal, state, local, and other tax. Then let's say it's 20 grand that I got to cut out to the government as well. Well, okay, that means total between self-employment tax and my federal, state, local, and other taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 for that year in taxes. That's about $3,000 a month, like we talked about in the last part of the video. That's a lot of money, okay? And I could think of like 50 different ways I could use this money right here, okay? So that's, that's being taxed as sole proprietor. You're not getting any savings here on the sole proprietor side. No savings, right? But again, like I told you on the earlier part of the video, that's okay if you're just starting out and you may not be making a lot of profitability. Remember, this is on netting 100K. If you're only netting 15, 20K, 30K, then slow your roll for a second and I'll talk about that. You're still, you're still gearing yourself up, okay? Now, let's talk about the LLC taxes and S-Corp with the same example where I netted 100,000. Here's the difference with the S-Corp on where the tax savings comes into play that you've heard all over the internet. With that 100,000, now remember, on the sole prop side, I'm paying self-employment tax on the entire 100,000. Here's the difference with the S-Corp. The difference with the S-Corp is that I am able to control how this, this $100,000 is paid, okay? Now, I have two ways that I can pay out this $100,000 in net income that my business made. The first way that I can pay it out is through a reasonable salary, and the second way I can pay that out is through a distribution. Let's talk about both, right? Now, I'm, I'm sure that y'all know that when you're an LLC as a uh, sole proprietor, you're not you're not, you're not paying a salary as an LLC to sole, sole prop. There's no salary involved, right? You just write yourself a check, but you don't, there's no payroll system for you as the actual business owner of the LLC or the sole prop. When you're taxed as an S-Corp, you actually become an employee now of the company, of your own company. You're an employee. You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary now, which I would suggest going to a payroll service in order to do that. Please do that, because if you don't, and you just write it yourself, now you're going to have other tax situations in the future. Go with a payroll service, uh, run your reason, run your salary through there, so that they can already take the tax. What I'm here to talk about is the life of a case. Now, this is important. Uh, you will focus on this topic in civil procedure. The other courses that you're going to be taking this semester and this first year are going to be dealing mostly with substantive law, contracts towards criminal law, property. And those are the substantive areas that defines people's rights, etc. But civil procedure is that subject that focuses on the process of litigating those rights when a dispute arises. And it's very important to understand how that process works. So you're going to learn about that from start to finish in your civil procedure class. So what I'm going to do today is give you an overview from start to finish as to what that looks like. And we're going to start with what typically is the beginning of a dispute is there is some type of incident 
So we'll keep it simple in this situation. We'll talk about a car accident. Very simple uh, situation where you have two people colliding on a road and there's a dispute that arises. There's injuries, personal injuries, property damage. So we have the issue of what do we do about this? Now someone who's injured in that situation is probably going to want to seek legal recourse to recover for that. They can do that through the vehicle of a lawsuit. So we'll style that person as the plaintiff and then we'll have a person that they sue as a defendant. Now, the questions that you're going to have to look at in civil procedure are many-fold, but some of them include who can I sue, where can this be done, what am I suing for, how do we do this? Now, and there's, you might as well throw in there, when can this be done? Now, the issue of what we're going to be suing for is going to be the topic that you'll be focusing on in your substantive law classes. So in a car accident, we're going to have a classic case of negligence or maybe the person was driving recklessly or they may have intentionally tried to target you with their vehicle. Then it goes up to different levels. But that's all within the realm of torts. So you would be studying the what to assert in this claim in your torts course. But the question that you're concerned with in civil procedure and that the question that you'll have to be aware of if you are the attorney for the plaintiff as well as if you're the attorney for the defendant is where can I do this? As you just learned, there are many different jurisdictions, different court systems throughout the United States. Every state, the District of Columbia, the territories, they all have judicial systems. And then there's the federal judicial system as well. So with this car accident, where among all of those places can this go? It's not necessarily just one place, it may be multiple places. But you have to know as the lawyer, where can I go? Can I go into Virginia State Court? Can I go into Wyoming Federal Court? Maybe it's both of them. Maybe it's neither one. Same thing as the defendant's lawyer. When your client is sued in a particular place, you as their lawyer need to be able to say, you can't sue us here. You've chosen the wrong location. You need to sue us somewhere else, so this case needs to be dismissed. So, part of where can this case be brought is going to be the issue of federal versus state court. Now, the state courts, generally speaking, are courts of general jurisdiction. They can hear cases of all kinds, with certain exceptions, where there are some federal law claims that are exclusively uh, tied to the jurisdiction of the federal courts. So you don't have to worry as much about that right now. Generally speaking, state courts can hear all kinds of cases. Federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. What limited jurisdiction means is that they can only hear those cases that Congress has affirmatively granted them the authority to hear through statutes. 
So Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution sets forth the scope of the judicial power, then Congress has to dole that out to the inferior federal courts, the federal district courts. So courts that are in the federal system can only hear those cases of a kind that have been given to it. So when we have this type of case right here, which is a simple car accident, our question is, is this the kind of case that can go into federal court or state court? Well, state courts, again, are courts of general jurisdiction. They are certainly going to be able to hear a case of this kind. But that doesn't mean it can't go into federal court. It depends on... Open and gross lewdness is a common charge that we see filed in Las Vegas. And usually it has to do with somebody who inappropriately touches somebody else, usually at a club or a bar. It's a very common charge. Often somebody who's charged with an open and gross is, uh, is someone who's been drinking, somebody who has no criminal record. Maybe they thought the contactor was invited and they misinterpreted social cues and didn't realize they were do so, doing something wrong. Or as a result of consuming alcohol, their inhibitions were, were low. And they, they did something that maybe they wouldn't have done when they were sober. The significant uh, issue relating to open and gross lewdness in the state of Nevada is it's considered a sex offense and it requires registration as a sex offender. So what might seem like a playful touching after a few cocktails could end up being something that requires you to register for life as a sex offender. So the consequences can be quite severe. I'm attorney Michael Becker of the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been arrested in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, Call us at 702-DEFENSE. We'd be happy to talk to you about your case.